This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media. Then we come to Ruth. And I know you've heard the story before. And I know we've covered it before quite a few times in different series. But this one message that you find in Ruth 4, it's so powerful. It's, 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 it's transformational. So I got to tell you the story. I got to summarize the, the story of Ruth and then hit the fourth chapter, especially a few verses, very hard and then make the Today. application. Today. So Today. Come on the journey. Today with Just Jeff Vines, pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. Ruth, Philippians, Malachi, Colossians, 2 Timothy, and Jonah, these are the only books in the Bible that have only four chapters. Hey there, you're listening to Today with Jeff Fines, and my name's Aaron. The series we're in is called For God So Loved. There's a little play on words there because it's for, F-O-U-R. Pastor Jeff says we can find great words of encouragement and challenges in the four chapters of each of these books. So let's join him now as we start a message looking at the book of Ruth. Here's Pastor Jeff. Last year, when I went on study break, and uh, this is why I say the Bible is such an amazing book, you can study the Bible all your life, and every time you come back to passages with which you should be familiar, you will see something new. And uh, of course, it depends on what stage of life you're in, what you're experiencing, what you're going through. It's all, always relevant. But something special happened last year when I was going through some of the chapters, and what I do is I go away once a year, and I'll plan the next year of sermons so that our worship team, our uh, uh, groups can kind of know where the pastor's gonna go, our elders can know what to pray for. So last year, not this year, but last year, I went away and I, I, as I started going through the text, and I'll pray, God, what do, you want me, what do your people, this is your church, what do your people need to hear? What words do you have for your people? And you know, that's a very humbling thing to do. You're trying to hear from God because you wanna be used of God. And I, I started noticing something that I had never noticed before. I noticed there were six books in the Bible that had only four chapters, six books that had only four chapters. And I started to read those fourth chapters, and they were Ruth, Jonah, Malachi, Philippians, Colossians, and 2 Timothy. So I said, you know, know, I'm not into the kind of numbers thing, but I thought, I'll read these chapters. And I started reading them. I thought, my goodness, how is it possible that a book, and this is what makes the Bible so amazing written over a period of 1,500 years by 40 authors from different walks of life. You're you're talking about kings and peasants and fishermen and shepherds and philosophers and statesmen and scholars. How is it that you can write this book over a period of 1,500 years and there's such continuity to it? How is that possible? You know, these weren't the days of Google. You know, today, if you're doing a homework assignment, you can Google something. But these... These authors lived in different time periods. They couldn't go and Google information from the past and say, you know what King David say about that? Let me bring that up. You're writing in your time and your knowledge, and yet this book is put together, and it, the continuity is uncanny. Uncanny how things hold together. And I read the fourth chapter of these six books, and I thought, this is, it's almost like God said, hey, I'm going to put this little hidden code in here for you. 
There's only six books in the Bible with four chapters. Read the fourth chapter and you'll find something special. So I started reading it. I want to take you, I want to tell you a story. So I'm going to ask you to relax a little bit this weekend and soak this in. Because I want to talk to you about Ruth chapter four. Last week, Jonah chapter four, and you should have learned what? You don't know better than God how your life should be going. Then we come to Ruth. And I know you've heard the story before. And I know we've covered it before quite a few times in different series. But this one message that you find in Ruth 4, it's so powerful. It's transformational. So I got to tell you the story. I got to summarize the story of Ruth and then hit the fourth chapter, especially a few verses, very hard and then make the application. So you come on the journey with me just quickly. We're talking about 1,100 years before the birth of Christ. And we meet a man in the first early chapters of Ruth by the name of Elimelech. He's a Hebrew by birth. He takes Naomi, his wife, Hebrew wife, and flees to Moab. And I want to show, I brought this here because they're here, the people of God. There's great famine in the land. And he moves from Jerusalem, takes his wife all the way down to Moab. Now, folks, that's like moving from San Francisco to Hemet. Why would you do that? I mean, things are bad. Why would you want to go to Moab? Because Moab's a bad, dark place. It's where they worship a god named Kamosh, and they sacrifice newborn babies on the molten altar. This is an evil, evil place. It's so evil that at one point, God said, look, you're just going to have to wipe them out. I got to just start over with this group. So Elimelech leaves Israel because there's famine, moves down to Moab, and he has two kids there with Naomi. Now, Elimelech is a name that means El, is from Elohim, God. Melech means king. God is king. Somewhere along the line, Elimelech left his God and abandoned his people. And the, the, the rare thing is, the strange thing is, he leaves Jerusalem, doesn't go to one of the other territories of the land that's been divided. He goes down to the enemies of Israel. These are the worst enemies of Israel, the Moabites. They want to annihilate them, want to exterminate them. He moves there with his Hebrew wife, abandons his country, abandons his, his king, God. And then the very thing that Elimelech is trying to avoid by moving to Moab ends up happening anyway. They find themselves in poverty and they're forced to sell off the land they have back in Israel, back in Jerusalem. So now they're in, they're in bad shape and they have nothing to fall back on. And then we're told in the story, through sickness and famine and hunger, Naomi, Elimelech's wife, is the only one remaining because Elimelech and his two sons, they both die. They died. All the guys are dead now, which is suspicious in my mind. Don't you think? Naomi survives, but Elimelech dies and the two sons that he named after. By the way, when Elimelech moved here, he named his two children. He gave them Moabite names, which is something you don't do if you're an Israelite. So Naomi's left in exile as a Hebrew woman. She's left in exile in Moab. And she has no future. And she has no future because she's too old to marry. In ancient civilizations, you didn't marry only for companionship, love, sex. You married to extend your family name, the progression and the expansion of your family. It's all you had. But Naomi can no longer offer that to anyone because she has no husband, no sons, no family, no land, no money, no assets, nothing. And then in the early part of chapter one, verse six, there's a turn in the story. Now stay with me. You gotta know the story. 
When Naomi heard in Moab, the Bible tells us, that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. So now we learn that even though the two sons are dead, their wives are still alive. So the women are still living. Guys are gone. So Naomi, who's Hebrew, decides to return to her home. Evidently, the people of Israel finally repented. And God does this all throughout Israel's history, right? They sin against God, and he either brings in the Assyrians, or he brings hunger, he brings something in. He, he judges them in such a way that they would come to the end of themselves, right, and turn their heart toward God. So when bad things happen, God's plan is that you would see what you had done, the sin in your life, the sin in the nation, you'd repent. So the bad things happen, yes, but God uses those things in, in, in order for your eyes to be open that you'd make a change. And so she has two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. They're still living. They're all in Moab. Orpah, by the way, I think we mentioned before, Oprah, Oprah gets her name from this character, Orpah. They actually misspell the name on her birth certificate. But Oprah was named after Orpah in the Bible, which means stubborn. <laughs> and then you have Ruth. Anybody know Dr. Ruth? There's no relationship whatsoever to this Ruth. <laughs> So both want to return with Naomi and actually follow her outside the city. And here's what happens in Ruth 1, 8 through 9. Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud. So Naomi was obviously loved by her daughters-in-law because they want to come with her. But she says, no, you can't come with me. You got to stay here. Why? Well, because they're young. They're beautiful. If they stay in Moab, they're Moabites. They can find a husband, have land, have territory, and have a life. If, if they go back with Naomi to Bethlehem, they'll probably be killed. They're the enemies of the Israelites. Now, out of love, Naomi says to Ruth and Orpah, in verse 11 through 13, return home. Go home. Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. And even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grow up? So Naomi knows that she's probably not going to survive. She's going to go home, but she knows there's really no future. She's probably going to die. She's not going to get married again. She's unable to give anybody children and expand the family, which was huge in those days and time. And she's not going to be able to offer her sons to Orpah and Ruth because she does not and probably will not ever have any. So Naomi, because she loves her daughters-in-law, daughters says, stay here. Find a husband. Go back. Come with me. You'll surely die. Stay here. You got a fighting chance. You following me? It's important that you understand this. Naomi can only survive one of four ways. Number one, she can work in the fields. When she gets back to Israel, she's too old. Can't do that. She can get married. Can't do that because she cannot produce heirs. Her children could support her, but they all died back in Moab. And her daughters-in-law can't help because imagine you're a Moabite woman and you come to Israel. What's going to happen? They're going to kill you. She could rent her land. The only problem is Elimelech sold the land so she has nothing to fall back on. So realistically, Naomi knows I'm going back home to die. 
In fact, in Ruth chapter one, verse 13, the latter part of it, she says, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. In other words, you've got something, your beauty and your youth, I got nothing. So she says, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant, call me Mara, which means bitterness. But then the story turns and here's what happens. Ruth does come back, Orpah does not. Now we'll talk about the conversation that Ruth has with her mother-in-law, Naomi, in just a few moments. But Ruth and Naomi come back together. And when they arrive, they've got nothing. So Ruth, the Moabite, starts to glean in Israelite fields. Now, what is gleaning? Jewish law stated that the landowners cannot harvest all the way around the edges. So you could not maximize the profits. You've got to leave some grain around the edge of the field for the poor. So the poor could bring one basket, fill it, and then move on. Naomi is too old. She can't go and glean, but the problem is if Ruth goes and gleans, she's a Moabite. The men would find her, abuse her. The other poor would probably kill her, feeling that she has no entitlement to this land, this Jewish gleaning. She's a Moabite. And yet, despite all of this, in chapter 2, we're told this in verse 2 and 3, Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. Now, why would she say that? She's sending her to the killing fields because there's no other way to survive. Might as well take our chances. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. And I love this next phrase. I wish we had time to talk about this simple Hebrew phrase. As it turned out, she was working in the field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. As it turns out means this. God was doing something on the other side. As it turns out means that you're not alone. Somebody else is in control. As it turns out means that this is a setup. I can't help but to think, and I know most of you are too young to know this, Casablanca, out of all the fields in Israel, you started gleaning in this one. I just love that. So Boaz now, who owns this field, who is Elimelech's relative, learns gossip on the grapevine about this Moabite woman gleaning from his fields. So he runs out to see who this woman is because Bo knows the severity of the situation. He knows the danger that Ruth is in. Now listen to what he says to her. This is in Ruth chapter two. My daughter, listen to me, don't go and glean in another field. In other words, man, I'm glad you came here because any other Israelite field, you'd be dead by now. So keep coming here. And don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. In other words, don't go and glean around the edges. You come into the middle of the field. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. So the men harvest, the women collect. You go with the women who are collecting. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you're thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. In other words, don't go outside to the well. If you go outside the field to the well where all the other women go, they're going to kill you. Stay here. Ruth, and time and again, Ruth is called Ruth the Moabite. All through chapters one through four, Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the Moabite, is astounded at the generosity of someone who had the power to slay her. So she goes home to Naomi. She brings with her, not the gleanings from the edge of the field, but she brings the best of the best of the harvest. Folks, this is the difference between what the butcher sweeps off the floor and what's hanging in the meat freezer. The good stuff. And you can imagine Naomi saying, girlfriend, where did you glean today? This is good stuff. And Ruth tells her, Ruth says, Boaz field. Naomi responds, 
The Lord bless him. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, he has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. What does she mean by that? Well, he's honoring the Limelech, his relative. She added, that man is our close relative. He's one of our guardian redeemers. Now, he's a go-well, a guardian redeemer, a kinsman redeemer. What is that? In Leviticus 25, when Joshua and the people came into the promised land, all the land was to be divided between the families, right? But God knew that some of the families would lose their land over time through circumstances, debt, hardship, even irresponsibility. So he made two provisions in the law that would enable the families to get their land back. Why would God do this? God wants his people to model grace and mercy to the rest of the world. This is a God of second chances. Even when you stink, even when you do something stupid, even when you make serious mistakes that cost you your inheritance, God is a God of second chances. Second, he didn't want the rich to be able to exploit the poor. So if you got all the money, you could come in when a poor person is at the end of their rope, buy their land for a cheap price, and then next thing you know, that family name is canceled out. God did not want that. So here's what God said. He said, every 50 years at the year of Jubilee, all the land goes back to the original families. The children of the parents who lost it get a second chance with the land. However, even before that 50 years is finished, the land can be bought back before that 50 years by a kinsman, a go-well, a guardian redeemer. The land can be ransomed, redeemed, bought back, but it has to be purchased by a member of the family. Some third party can't come in. Some rich person can't come in and buy up all the land so that the family who originally owned it never gets another chance to restore the family name. It's simply a picture of God's grace, and we could do a whole sermon series on the year of Jubilee. And I think it was God's way of keeping the family together because once the family breaks up, society is destroyed, right? Now, you can understand why Naomi gets her hopes up all of a sudden. She feels as though she's been given a lifeline. She knows the name Boaz. She recognizes the names of her kinsmen. She can begin to dream again. Maybe Boaz will buy her land back and restore the family name. The land that Elimelech sold out of desperation during the great famine in Moab. That would be an incredible act of compassion to Naomi. She would get her life back, but it's still a long shot, and here's why. This would be extremely costly to Boaz. The cost would be enormous. He would have to buy the land back, taking on an enormous debt while he's still operating his own enterprise. And that would be just the beginning because Naomi's family could never be truly restored because there are no heirs. They all died back in Moab. There's no one to pass the land on to. For genuine restoration to occur, Boaz would have to marry the last member of the family and then raise up children. But that would be Naomi, and Naomi's too old. Her days of bearing children are over. And if Boaz married Naomi, the heir of all his treasures would go to the two dead sons. In other words, everything that he owns would go to the state when he died. So if he marries Naomi, he loses himself. There's another option, though. You know what it is, don't you? Marry Ruth, the daughter-in-law. If Boaz were to marry Ruth, the Moabite, that would give Naomi her life back and maybe even grandchildren who would become heirs. Somewhere along the line, the light comes on for Ruth. She begins to understand Naomi's culture and practice. And what's so amazing? This is, you talk about a good daughter-in-law. Her love and respect and compassion for Naomi is so great that she's willing to give herself away. I'm assuming that Boaz is no spring chicken. 
You know, I'm not, I don't think that Ruth took a look at Boaz and thought, man, what a cute guy he is. No, he's probably all been around the block a few times. She's not thinking of her own needs. She's thinking of the life of her mother-in-law. She loves her that much. And Ruth goes to Boaz during the night. And the Bible tells us she uncovers his feet, which is still practiced today. Let me read the verse. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. That's Boaz. He turned and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you, he asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me. Now, this is still done in certain parts of the world. Cover me with yourself. Take me to be your wife. Be my husband. Be my provider. Cover me with your love and provision. Spread the corner of your garment over me, for you are my kinsman redeemer. Ruth chapter 3, verse 9. It's Ruth's way of saying, you can give us our name back, our land back. You can restore and redeem and rescue and deliver us. You can give us life. And to show you that Boaz understands marriage very well, his response in Ruth chapter 3, verse 11, I will do everything you ask. Oh, he gets marriage. He understands marriage. <laughs> Boaz does two things at that point. He takes on all the debt of the family, all the debt required to gain their lives back, all the land that was lost, and he's going to be paying interest and monthly payments. And the minute he marries Ruth, all of his wealth legally, immediately, automatically becomes hers. Debts are paid, all assets gained. She's now heir of his kingdom. Not only is she going to avoid death, Naomi and Ruth, the life that she's about to be given will be better than anything she had before, better than anything she could have ever dreamed of. Now stay with me. Man, the point of Ruth 4. But the story continues because you know the name of the book is not the book of Boaz, is it? It's called the book of Ruth. Now stay in the story. Why did Ruth come with Naomi? I can't believe I didn't see this. Why did she come with Naomi? Because Naomi tries to get Ruth to stay. Naomi knows there's no life for you where I'm going. Your treasures and your future is back in Moab. You can gain an inheritance there. You're a good-looking woman. You can still get a husband. That's what Naomi's thinking. You're young. Where I'm going, you're not going to have anything. But Ruth replied, verse 16 in chapter 1, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I'll go. And where you stay, I'll stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Now you think about what's going on. Hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus ever gets to planet earth in human form. Ruth knows that if she goes with Naomi, there's a chance that Naomi will not die. But if Ruth does not leave the comfort of her own home and land, Naomi will most certainly perish. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Fines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. This pursuit, the things that you're after, it might be feeding you, you might be making money, there's monetary gain, the cost is great, and you're losing your soul. Do you think Jesus was kidding when he said, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? This thing that you've got, you don't have it, it's got you, and you know you're not strong enough, the allure is too great, you're too weak, and there's only one possible solution. You gotta get out of Moab, and you gotta get out now. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Fines wherever you listen to podcasts. You make me wanna dance and sing with every single-
Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media.